Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. You're listening to Griefcast with me, Carrie Ad Lloyd. Griefcast is a place to talk, share and laugh about the peculiar human process of death and grief. Each week I talk to a different person about their experiences of grief and death as we remember someone that they have lost along the way. Whether it was a long time ago or you've just joined the club. Welcome to Griefcast. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well... HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey Griefsters, I hope you're having an okay week. It's about the fourth time I've tried to record this introduction (laughs) because I'm very tired and I keep, well, someone in the background was listening and he said I sounded a bit mad. (laughs) So hopefully I don't sound too mad in this one. Thank you for your amazing comments about this season. I hugely appreciate everyone who's been in touch. I've been quite excited about this season. I think we've had some amazing guests and amazing conversations. If you've been enjoying it, please do rate, review and subscribe. It makes such a huge difference. And if you've done that already, thank you so much. This week, I'm talking to journalist and writer Seamus O'Reilly. Seamus is the author of the very, very funny, I can't really emphasise how funny this book is, even though it is about death. And it is called Did You Hear Mammy Died? Um, It is such a brilliant book we do discuss it on the um on the chat that you're about to hear but uh, yeah i know i recommend a lot of books but this one is is a really funny read <laughs> even though as i said it's about something very sad Seamus is just the loveliest writer the way he captures childhood grief and the bizarreness that comes with it i think if you enjoy grief class you will definitely enjoy that book so here is Seamus talking about the grief he experienced when his mum died when he was just five This is a weird thing to say about a book that does encompass grief. And I feel like maybe I'm the only person who can say it because my show is in the same vein. But it is such a funny book. Like it is such a brilliant, brilliant, funny book. I've been, I get sent a lot of books about grief and I don't always approach them happily. (laughs) Because it's like, oh, here we go. And I have been just chuckling reading your book so much. So congratulations on- Oh, thank you so much. That was, it's definitely intended. um, So people have actually said that to me quite a bit where they're like, oh, I don't know if I'm allowed to say that I enjoyed your book. I was like, you absolutely are supposed to tell me that you enjoyed it. Um, And I think it gets to something- 
I mean, the book obviously is has got loads of sad bits in it because that's the just the material is yeah, that yeah. my mum died when I was very little and everything, and so we'll get into that. But it's also I absolutely intended it to be a funny book, and I think it speaks to a wider thing about how and why humour is valued. Not just in grief, but just in culture, I think. Yeah. It's always a little subset. It's always like, you know, the best comedy you have ever seen would never win Best Picture at the Oscars. Yeah, yeah. You know? Um, and there's something like almost that the more humour you add to something, either you cheapen it or you uh, you separate it away from a sort of art that we give plaudits to. Yeah, yeah. Um, and there's a certain level at which, you know, something like even in TV, like Succession or Fleabag are excellent, very, very, very funny shows. But it's almost as if if they were just slightly, slightly, slightly funnier, they would just be, oh, great comedy. Yeah, yeah. yeah, But they wouldn't be Emmy winning. They wouldn't be the show. They wouldn't be, because there has to be, there's almost this po-facedness or seriousnessness. And I think I wanted to, I wanted to attack the issue and basically the story of my childhood with the humour because I think I, I want to stick up for humour I want to stick up yeah. for the fact that it's this stuff can be really really horrible and sad but it can also be incredibly funny and through the eyes of a child which I was when my mum died I think a lot of that humour is just right there so it's real yeah it's real isn't it and I, I just think as well what I love so much is if you are a family that deals with things through humour which my family was exactly the same then you know it's a it's a place of safety when something happens that someone you know you're all heartbroken you're all sad and someone will just crack a joke (laughs) that just cracks everybody and then you're still sad but it just gives you those like bubbles of relief where you're able to just you know have a moment my mum always says if you don't laugh you'll cry which you know I've had to have a lot of therapy about her attitude to that (laughs) (laughs) but I do think it's sort of you know relevant and not relevant but so yeah let's start at the end so obviously you said away but who are we remembering today Today we are remembering Sheila O'Reilly, who was uh, Nee McGullion, who was my mother, um, still is my mother, I suppose. Um, It's just a few weeks, two weeks ago, it was her 30th anniversary. Oh my goodness. Yes. So as you can tell by my incredibly uh, clear skin and (laughs) kind child's eyes, I was only a little boy. So I was three weeks before my sixth birthday, um, which also lets you know when my birthday is if you're the pre- present <laughs> yeah. giving type in eight days um so it was obviously tragically sad she was only 43 it was press cancer and she uh, and my father had 11 kids um so i should be clear that even by the standards of irish families and very irish catholic families in the 70s and 80s this is a truly gigantic family uh, I love I th- what you wrote about that in the book of like look I just want you you have a whole like power of, I just want to clear up this isn't just an Irish thing Irish people thought we were weird like in our minibus with 11 of us on there other people and that amazing what did you say of like people used to work out what school year they were in by which O'Reilly was in the year with them oh yeah and, and not only that but I'd said that because I'd heard my brother and a few other people had heard that said to them but it was a kind of a good story that I'd heard um, second and third hand yeah. since writing the book people have got in touch saying oh yeah yeah we used to do that we got a, 
my we my brother was a Sinead, my uh, sister was a my sister was a twins a twins meaning you were in the same year as the twins in our family oh my God. Uh, so I had all these things which I didn't really want to go digging into in case I turned out that that was maybe kind of a thing that people said and they've all been confirmed I've had people <laughs> I've had people come and get in contact and say oh you won't remember me but I got the bus with you guys every year and I remember the minibus that your dad drove which wow. I described which it was nicknamed obviously the O'Reilly Mobile <laughs> With some horrible inevitability. So yeah, we were aware that we were a big family even then, and that it was crazy to have such a big family. Um, in my parents' generation, families that size would have been slightly more common. Mm. Um, I mean, my my uh, my in-laws, my my wife's parents, they're both one of twelve. Wow. Um, so they would have been in the forties, fifties, sixties. Yeah, kind of. my granddad was one. He's East End. Um, he was one of seven. But like, yeah, I think like eleven and twelve is like, what? yeah. I think like, in in my childhood, I would have known a few people who were like five, six, and they were considered big families because yeah, yeah. those are big families. <laughs> yeah. Um, so we were that. So that was obviously one strand of my life story. Yeah. The fact that my mom died, and at forty four, my father was widowed, and then had to bring up eleven kids, and they were all different ages. So we they also had the kids very quickly so uh, the 11 kids at the time of my mother's death were between 2 and 17 years old so all children no adults yet and at every single stage so if you think of every single type of grief you can imagine just because they're individuals but also because they're different ages different school years also the way that someone who is you know older and knows that they're about to go off to university that's hard to parse and to kind mm. of work out then there's a 14 year old who's stuck in the middle and there's 10 year olds who just about are kind of making their sense of things in the world and then there's people like me who are 5 and my little sister and little brother who kind of didn't really know what was going on at all so it's all of that stuff combined under one roof where you know my dad is also lo- mourning the love of his life mm. and someone who he's he's never remarried and he's never he's never had another relationship he you know he really that was such a big thing for him personally and it is only in writing the book that I actually interrogated that because I'm obviously a a wonderful person who only thinks about himself (laughs) and I thought about it from loads of other angles I thought about how tough it must have been for him to raise kids obviously I thought about how horrible uh, and scary it must have been you know traipsing through you know, life in a minibus oh <laughs> with 11 kids. And then as, you know, some of us went off to college and, and, and started started lives for ourselves elsewhere, you know, seven, eight, seven, six, five, four kids. Yeah. But like going through checkpoints, because this was during the Troubles in Derry, all that stuff was background noise. But something I hadn't really thought about was his own relationship. Yeah, the fact yeah. that he saw his wife die over the course of three or four years with remissions in between and hope there and thereabouts. And, you know, the fact that he, you know, the universe just collapsed. Mm. And the thing I tried to get across in the book is, and I tease my dad a lot and I make fun of my dad and I kind of make him into a cartoon because he is a cartoon, really. There's so many funny things about him. But I want everybody who reads the book to come away with the idea that after the universe collapsed, he kind of held it up together with his own yeah, hands. Yeah, He... He brought it back to life again when, when everything died. And he did it with such sort of diligence and hard work and mm-hmm. without complaining that I never gave we never had the opportunity to give him credit. So I mean it's yeah. extraordinary. It really is like you said it is extraordinary because it's it is an unusual amount of children. Um 
and it's a, and you know my dad died when he was 44 and it, it's a really it's a really young age you know it and especially you know as you get to the age where you start approaching it you think oh my god because I maybe same as you I don't know what you had but I remember when I was 15 I, I thought my dad was old because I was like 44 yeah, years old of course <laughs> like, so when when he died I was like well old people do die so and then as I've got older I've had completely again like you said you you refigure everything don't you, you think oh actually I was quite young but for your mum to die at 43 is, is is so young and then to have to to have to hold together 11 people I mean 11 people you know even if he, he was like a boss of a company with 11 people and like he had to hold them together <laughs> that would be a big job you'd be like wow gosh well that's really well, hard but 11 there, kids there was also the multipliers so basically uh at certain times things were easier or, or less easy i mean uh, in from 99 to 2000 i believe it was he had six of his seven daughters were teenagers at once i mean no 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 <laughs> I mean, no no, no. What's, like, what, what on earth like i mean and things as i say in the book like i can't imagine what that was like and i was literally there oh my God. like and i do remember like the we we had we lived in a bungalow in the countryside had loads of rooms it was like yeah. basically an old farmhouse very far from anywhere else <laughs> we uh, were right on the border with the republic of ireland and uh we you know we we didn't have like you know on sweets for everybody or anything. Yeah. So some some mornings you just literally go out and do a wee in the in the field, <laughs> or you know if if you could like Glastonbury rules just because yeah how like, else well, are you going to get get anything how, done yeah yeah like every time you picked up the phone there was always some sort of conversation going on. Oh my god! Um, I just like there was slamming of doors and yeah. all these kinds of things that I couldn't quite understand. So like I would and, and at the time my dad was fifty. This is a fifty-year-old, fifty-year-old rural Northern Irish man, who is, you know, at least helping to guide or shepherd his yeah. teenage daughters through adolescence, oh, which God. is so far beyond the means or the experience of any of my my friends' parents, yeah. uh, specifically their dads. And uh, I think I tried to get across that part of my dad's genius was in being able to welcoming us talking about our emotions yeah. in a way that was very very natural and very gentle it was partly inspired by his own faith he was very catholic but also very very committed to a sort of a sort of a folk catholicism mm. you know he liked the masses that had the guitars basically is what i'm trying <laughs> to say those you kind of can have a picture in your idea of what that might be like and we used to go to cross community stuff with you know catholics and protestants kind of worshiping together and stuff um I do not have the faith my father did, but I totally love those kind of tenets of togetherness and family and work and love and love being work. And part of that work being putting yourself in the awkward position of listening to people when they're sad. And he would sit and he would listen and he would say, well, I feel sad sometimes. And, you know, these kind of like Sesame Street platitudes, but they were so bananas removed from anything that my friends' dads yeah, yeah. W- would have had even the vocabulary to say, even if they'd, I'm sure they probably wanted at times to say these things. And particularly in Northern Ireland, well, Ireland, North and South, but particularly in Derry, you know, it's now thankfully much more in vogue for people to talk about feelings and those yeah. kinds of things. But like, we're still so far away, so, so, so far away from it being normalised to that point. I mean, they're still, the dad's my age, yeah, in, yeah. In Derry. I don't know if they can. I mean, I, on the other hand, have the opposite problem where I'm, 
I genuinely feel like I give my son more direct praise every single day than I ever received in my life. I'm like, <laughs> am I going to raise a psychopath? Like, I don't know. I, I, I don't know what the answer is. I don't, I don't know how to hold the balance. Yeah, I'm, because you're used to being, you know, an 11th of something. Yeah, exactly. It's a very different experience to like, you know. Absolutely. He's got one-on-one. Like, that's completely different. But yeah, your dad sounds incredible and I think like you said that it's there's a lot of factors that obviously came together like you said his faith being an extremely practical person who was good at like fixing things I'm sure that was unbelievably helpful (laughs) as you drive across Europe in a minivan like and like that's the bit that stuck with me recently like I thought that was a really nice bit so you all get in this van and you all drive to see your mum's sister in Spain and the car you know the door falls off there's a hole in the van and it's not until he gets to Spain that, you know, you realise, oh, that's probably where he starts being allowed to grieve. Because you're right, mm. like, the chaos of children. And I've had a lot of listeners say this to me. You know, it postpones grief. And they now call it delayed grief, the sort of the technical term for it. Like, if you have to look after an ailing parent or you have to sell the house or you have to look after 11 children, you can't grieve in the normal way. You can't go, OK, here's no. all my feelings, let's face them. No, and I think it's kind of a subset of that other thing that happens in Irish culture, which is the wake. Mm. And the wake is uh, almost, it's almost like the sticking plaster on the dam of of grief that happens because for two days, maybe three days after uh, the person dies, um, for the funeral and the wake and the sort um, sort of waking the body, there's a period of hyper socialization where there's hundreds of people sometimes, in our case there was... Yeah, very, very hundreds and hundreds of people coming and going in the house, uh, saying you know, giving their wishes and having we all had to be fed and given tea. And I've never had to arrange or even be, be part of a group of people who've had to arrange anything for um, for, for a funeral or a wake in my adult life. Um, thankfully, touch wood. But I can kind of imagine in my head that that'd be the last thing I'd ever want to do. I mean, yeah, personally, God. I'd be like, yeah. no, I want to climb into a hole in the ground yeah. and I want to just block everything out. And I just want to never think about it. Just, I, are you telling me I have to have 400 people traipsing through my house? <laughs> and feed them all and, and give them all tea and make, and yeah, everyone's got Make chairs. pyramids of sandwiches. I mean, that's another yeah. thing, by the way. A lot of things in Father Ted that uh, people who are not from Ireland thought were like absurd yeah. Or not? They're like kitchen sink, like yeah, uh, yeah. the py- the pyramid of sandwiches and the people offering you tea. Like that's like five percent more extreme than it actually is in real life. <laughs> like there was literally like ice sculpture sized pyramids of vulvans. <laughs> and uh, do you like my pronunciation of that? I, I did. I, I did very nice. Yeah. And, and sandwiches. So in the book, I say that, that maybe that's what that's for. It's like yes, you can absolutely grieve and tear yourself apart, but how about you make 600 cups of tea first <laughs> and then come back to me. So it's, yeah. it's like you were saying. And while writing the book, I then had that revelation that that's exactly what planning that trip was. My dad's a very methodical guy. He's an engineer by, a uh, retired engineer by, by trade. So he's a practical man. You know, he built his first house literally from scratch, literally from plans that he himself had drawn. Oh my God. Um, he studied architecture in university. He was part of the first basic generation of Northern Irish Catholics who were able to get third level education so he was part of that whole crew who were like yeah I'll do it myself and that is is his buzz you know he would do things himself and part of that was he became you know he'd become 
obsessed with like planning, say, a trip to Spain to see my uh, my auntie Aileen. And, you know, it meant getting out the maps and the pencil and making sure he had the right line. And, okay, we're going to bring this, we're going to bring that. And then we had a our minibus, obviously, but on the way there, we're going to have to sleep. So we had a 26-foot caravan. So with the minibus and the caravan together, it's like a 50-foot long oh convey- conveyance, which had to go around. I don't know if you've ever driven in the Pyrenees. Yes, it's like, like wiggly, wiggly roads. Like when you, when you see cyclists yeah. doing it, you're like, oh, my God, this is this is death defying we were doing it in like basically like <laughs> it was like center point driving yeah. down the, the why i was just like when you know, i read that i was like surely there was a a, be- a better road to go on but i was like i guess not you gotta go from england to france to spain like yeah, yeah. Go so we went roads. we went from Derry to plymouth i think and then france and whatever way it was but my dad loves all that stuff my dad loves planning and he and I realise I do too. I loved, even when I was writing the book, I was like, loved getting all my recordings and alphabetising them and everything. Part of that was absolutely procrastination. I'm sure yeah, that's common yeah. to loads of writers <laughs> or people no, who should I, be coming up with it. I think it's definitely, um, you can see how with grief, it's a safe place, isn't it? Because you've, you've lost control. Something has come into your world, taken someone and you had no say in the matter. And but what you can do is you can plan a holiday and you can you know and like yeah. in a way it's so interesting isn't it because that's exactly what you as eleven kids needed was someone to just be like I'm not going to crawl into a hole I'm not going to you know put the telly on and not speak to anyone I am going to like plan this and keep us all on track and I yeah, guess I mean, you know he probably there's a sense in the book of your like well you know that he's very kind of like well that's what I did and it's like but he didn't have to he could have collapsed he could have and he he obviously the strength in him to not well not only that I mean the thing he's actually very uh, remarkably kind of clear-eyed about is that if he had collapsed nobody would have judged him yeah yeah, you know if he'd if he'd you know he said at one time to me and I didn't put this in the book because I didn't want it to seem like it was referencing a bigger thing than it was but he was like one time about two months afterwards he was having he had he, my dad's not a drinker really at all my mum never drank in her life she was a pioneer uh, kind of a swore off alcohol for, for catholic reasons um and my dad wasn't, wasn't a big drinker but he'd have the odd glass of wine the odd beer um like maybe at like at christmas or something yeah. or maybe with, with his sunday dinner he might have a glass of wine and he was at a thing and he was having a glass of wine and someone made some comment about oh jeez you know it's just so good to see you, Joe. Oh, good, good to see you're having something to drink. That's nice. It's some little comment or something. Yeah. And he was like, okay, I'm not drinking. I'm not going to do that in public. That's oh a thing God. that people know. That's a thing yeah. that people could make a thing about. And when he said that, I was like, I can totally imagine that being your response. Because you don't want to give them or yourself that an out. Yeah, or some yeah. sort of a thing which anybody could ever say, oh, that's that's Jesus. Well, well, wouldn't you? Wouldn't you be driven to, yeah, to drink yeah, or whatever? Yeah. And especially, I mean, it speaks a lot into, I think, rural Ireland as well, and its attitudes to drink is it whole other issue. Um, but it was funny to me that it also spoke to the fact that he was slightly embarrassed by the fact that this was such a story. There is nobody who knew, you know, ten parses over who hadn't at least heard about that family with eleven kids that the mum yeah, died. Yeah. And it's just the dad there looking after them. And sure, Jesus, I saw him having a drink or something like that. You know? yeah, That's yeah. what he feared. And we'd have people who we didn't know particularly well who would pop in. And there was, just within their well-meaning, the slight whiff of rubbernecking. There was it becoming something where, like in school, I went to new schools, like in my secondary school. 
and someone told like one of those jokes like oh your ma's so fat she's mm. you know blah 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 um, which could never offend me because I really 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 like jokes <laughs> and also I get that it's a construct even at 11 yeah. years old they would never make me upset even if you did it deliberately it wouldn't make me upset I'd be like but what do you mean and uh, even I had not spoken to any of them about the fact that my mum died but they all knew yeah and they all went oh god oh that's so lousy and then the guy was like he remembered it. he was like oh my god and like that was even worse I was having to stage manage other people's <laughs> upset yeah yeah it's interesting and I think there's definitely an element which maybe has changed maybe hasn't of like when the mum goes of a family with a lot of children I think you know as in like how will the dad cope and like you said that kind of rubbernecky I had a friend at primary school who's um whose mum passed away of breast cancer actually and again it, they uh, there was three of them and there was definitely that like oh how will he cope and then he was amazing and there was definitely like a, not a surprise but like he's actually doing very well you know like even though he's a man <laughs> he's actually doing very well with the children because and I don't you know no one sort of questioned whether my mum would cope with the ki- her kids it was like well yeah the, the mum's still alive it was more like how will you survive because the man has gone but it was never like looking after the children is this innate sense of a man with 11 children what will he do so of course he had like such a and like you said no no one would have no one would have judged him for having a drink <laughs> like Jesus <laughs> like, yeah <clears throat> I think um, it's weird though because as well there's two things one is um my dad hated that kind of talk mm. about him because he hated the thought that we were being pitied um, because also he felt like it was literally his job mm. and it was literally the thing which he dedicated his life to was family and it, before my mum died. So to him it was, maybe there was a slight grain of offence in there, like you're saying, it's like why yeah. would it yeah, be surprised? Why would it be so surprised to you that I love my children? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> But two, I have to say, having had that example my entire life and not really having very many memories at all of of mothering or having a mother, it has solidified an awful lot of very, very, very strong feelings about parenting in me mm. now that I have my own son. I have very little patience for the genre of dad bants yeah, yeah, yeah. about you know, expressly hating having to do the work of parenting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. As if because, it's just like, oh my God, that awful I mean, I, thing, my child. Have, for three years, I have written a column where, of course, I have strayed into that territory about parenting um, because some of that stuff is very funny. Yeah. But there's a point where it kind of shifts over, you know, and you hear certain, particularly men say, almost act as if it's a, it's an imposition that they have to yeah. raise their own children. I mean, the fact that, for example, someone like Jacob Rees-Mogg can go on the radio and say that he's never changed in a nappy. Oh, I know. I wanted to burn, I wanted to burn him to the ground. <laughs> I wanted to burn him to the ground like the guy that he is, like the mm. horrible tweed nonsense scarecrow man that he is. Because that's, that to me is repulsive. It's, yeah. it's a repulsive idea and it's a repulsive act. It's of this, it's like psychopathic uncaringness yeah. um, I'm just refusal to roll up your sleeves roll up your still, sleeves do the work we still it's funny so yeah I have two kids not husbands and um, <laughs> that would be too much work and um, we you know I work a lot and we share it, we share the parenting a lot and yeah my, my husband says the same thing of like 
the the way he is praised for being Mm. in a playground and looking after a kid like and he's like they're mine but they're like oh he's so good isn't he he is good because he goes to the playground it is good that he does that and you're like literally no one fucking says well done to me when i do yeah no one two weeks ago like yeah Two weeks ago, my mum's. I went back for my mum's anniversary, and I took my uh, son by myself. It was the first time we ever flown together by ourselves. It was a laugh. <laughs> uh, it was slightly stressful, but it was it was it was fun. But on the the flight the whole way, the, I was fawned over, and <laughs> I, I, it was. I literally just just wrote about this for the Observer. Like you, just I'm not saying the bar is low. Yeah, oh, but I was literally, but I was, but I was literally praised for 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 like wiping his nose. Yeah. There, was a, there was a woman beside us who just thought it was absolutely adorable that I, I wasn't, I don't know, beating him over the head with a lead pipe or yeah. something. And that's uh, in our generation where it is a bit more, it is a bit more usual for men to be involved. But you said your dad's generation, like you know, my mum famously, my mum praises my husband a lot. Oh, he's so good, he's so good, and I have argued he's not good he's just doing his job and she always says well I mean I could never have left your dad with you and you're like literally you could have left and she's like oh no 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 it wouldn't, wouldn't be safe <laughs> like and you're like so for your dad to have taken that mantle on and as you said for that to be and to, to be emotional and to and to allow you guys to grieve so like so what happened um when you would all get when you would obviously of course get upset he would allow your mum's memory to be kept alive then I mm. guess and to talk about it yeah, absolutely. Um, so, uh, my mum and dad. I mean, I should probably actually preface this by telling a little bit more about my mum because obviously, uh, the book obviously talks about the one, the parent that I know the best. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Despite its name, um, but I should say my mum was a very, almost preternaturally empathetic person. Um, she was a truly beautiful, wonderful person, um, and my dad would probably say that most of his parenting style I don't think his skills or his talents I think those are all his own but his style was very much informed by her style mm. there is an unbelievable level of kindness um, a sort of radical kindness uh, to my mother so much so that for you know she was in Derry for six years and there was a thousand people at the funeral um, wow. I had she had 11 kids she taught French and Irish in school and she was undergoing cancer treatment and six months before she died, she decided she was going to learn German because the her, my brother Shane and Sinead, they had a language trip and one of the teachers dropped out. And as a language teacher, she thought she would go. She doesn't speak German. I will learn GCSE German in one year, which she did with 11 kids and a full-time job and undergoing cancer treatment. Gee, so, oh, sorry, I shouldn't. Sheila would not approve of me saying Jesus. That. Um, no, she but, would. She oh, would my God. oh, my God. Oh, my God. Yeah, so, I mean, also they had 11 kids, but they also fostered six or seven kids. Um, what? They, oh, my... Gosh. Yeah, they were, she, she was that person, Oh, though. my goodness. And the thing about that is, obviously, what happens is you get told all these beautiful, wonderful stories. Like, people mm. would stop me on the street. They'd see... They, I probably reminded them of uh, one of my brothers and sisters that they did know, because I'm at the younger end. They'd say, are you Sheila's boy? And they would grab me by the cheeks and say you don't know me but she did such a and it would be some kindness you know she'd gone and visited them in, someone in a hospice or she'd offered something for someone she she was just that person she really was mm. and it meant that whenever I was growing up I was I was you know she her there's a beautiful portrait of her that's up in, uh, in our sitting room still to this day and she, she looks gorgeous in the sort of 80s sort of like a little blazer 
and uh, it's very kind of a professional sort of headshot looking yeah. picture um, and so that's how I remember that's how I think of her really because I saw the picture every single day and I'd occupied the same place in the home and kind of in my mental state as like the Virgin Mary picture that yeah. we would have elsewhere or the Sacred Heart or you know it was it was a devotional icon almost yeah and so growing up I find it very hard to parse those things she was the saintly woman who was this incredible uh, person about whom I didn't really know very much mm. um, so I gravitated towards the people at those get togethers and memorials and we had a mass for my mum every year I gravitated towards her friends who would tell me stuff that wasn't nice about her I would gravitate to the ones who would you know say like the blasphemous things like she couldn't tell a joke to save her life <laughs> or if you wanted to if you if you wanted like you know her to write a story it would be like the man on the field walked in the you know she's just you know like really just assassinating her you know yeah, and yeah. that it added so much to it it adds so much to the roundness of a picture because I think for people who lose someone before they really got a chance to know them mm. those are that's life raft well, you need the whole picture don't you you need the whole human and um, it's, it's interesting to me because um, often I speak to people who you know were a child when their parent died and and they'll say oh you know everyone kind of like oh they were so wonderful they were so wonderful but often they're saying that out of politeness because someone's died but it's, it's interesting because it sounds like your mum really was almost saintly so you're you're not just dealing with like people being polite because she died young and she had 11 kids so they would say nice things you're dealing with the fact that she was genuinely a really helpful kind person but as you said that that doesn't you when you grow up you have to form as you would have done as you as if you had been around if she had been around you would have you know got to know her as a teenager and adult and maybe had a row one time and and they would have become a fully fleshed person and I think it, it can be hard if you don't if you're not in that club that niche of the club to understand why you need other details because like you said they're so they're, they're so vague aren't they you've only got like this one aspect of them like you and them you as a five-year-old them as an adult and you just you, you want the other bits that you didn't get yeah, I mean, I was doing an event with Dr. Julia Samuels. Saint uh, Julia Samuels, is <laughs> she's, on the show. Isn't she just wonderful? Oh, she's uh, amazing. Um, I did the Dare Parents Club oh, uh, yes. thing for the Good Grief Festival. Yeah. And Safras Mansour was there. And he'd, he'd said exactly the opposite thing, which was that, um, and I don't want to sort of steal his memory. And, off, and, let's do it. <laughs> no, but I, I don't want to. I don't want to get the story wrong. But I, right. it was something like that. After his father had died, his his mother's tellings of his father was that he was this unbelievable saint, and there was maybe a disconnect for him. And like, oh well, you know, the, uh, he he might not have been that perfect. And yeah. we bonded over that same thing because he could remember, you know, all the faults yeah. and failings and everything else. Whereas I've got the opposite thing where I have to go and outsource it. I have to get it from, you know, luckily the 10 external hard drives that I have, uh, that I'm related to. Yeah. Um, but also from my father. I mean, you, you 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 mentioned like how my father would, would give us space and stuff. Well, literally we would sit around sometimes. They were kind of slightly mortifying little uh, family meetings that were kind of intermittent because the, the mortification was very real. And bear in mind that as much as I might have been into it because I was eight, you know, the... 15 and 16 year olds were like well, this is the what is thing. this what <laughs> yeah. is this Brady Bunch nonsense what is it um, because we were a lot more sarcastic and ironic yeah. and sardonic than our parents who were uh, uh, my dad still is extremely like uh, he's, he's not necessarily 
in the same current of humor as I am. I can yes. make him laugh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I, I've got to read him the book, most of the book, uh, before it was published, and he laughed a lot. But there were some parts of which he could never find funny yeah. because it's just not his style of humor. His style of humor is um, Northern Irish radio DJs making jokes about politics. Uh, <laughs> yeah. um, but he, you know, in those meetings, and also just if I went one to one, he would speak with a sort of this luxurious softness in his voice. He had a very, very calming voice. Um, still does and he hates it when I do this impression because he says it's not very accurate but it actually is extremely <laughs> accurate and so it's still it's very honey tipped and yeah. um, and he adds this register that he slips into because I mean sometimes a lot of time he's just you know he's annoyed because someone hasn't got the grass or whatever else but he slips into this register which is like sort of God Daddy you know mm. it's like for, I address him as Daddy at all times because it is his name uh, in the Northern Irish kind of colloquial sense, not in a sort of posh sense. Uh, so I'm like, Daddy, uh, not feeling great. Or Daddy, I miss Mummy, or whatever. And I remember doing that once or twice. And I remember being in the room when other people had. And he would just, you know, embrace us and talk to us about it. And it was just more the fact that you felt like it wasn't something that you were doing that was sucking all the air out of the room and that you'd never do again. Mm. Even if someone's nice to you. Because that's another thing about grief, is that uh, I always and I'm sure I fail at this loads of times when someone has been through something and they're talking to me about it I always try and marshal my body language and my responses so that even if I'm there and I'm present and I'm listening to it that's not enough mm. they have to know that I am absolutely engaged and this is not a downer for me yes, to yeah, the point yeah. that they should never bring this up again because we know what active listening looks like yeah. and we also know what people are like oh yeah, yeah, that sounds really sad yeah, yeah, have you talked? Do you want to? Yeah, okay. You know those kinds of because sometimes you don't want to talk about this stuff with the person who has gone through it. Yeah, but you have to man up and do it, and uh, you have to. Depending on the relationship you have with this person, if it's someone at a bus stop, I mean, maybe you might. <laughs> I mean, and everyone yeah, yeah, knows those limits. But that sounds amazing that he allowed that space, and I think that's it's interesting, isn't it? Because there were so many of you there's lots of opportunities like you said for others to bring it up and then for the as you describe in the book the wee ones the you know the younger gang to watch and that's what you do a lot as a kid and I I mean I had this a lot because my brother was 19 when he died so I would kind of like if he got upset and my mum and him would then talk about it I'd be sat there like like watching fucking David Attenborough I'd be like oh okay <laughs> okay so it's okay to talk about it and mum doesn't get cross and we're all crying but that's okay and that definitely <clears throat> as you said that you just want you want that feeling to be like the door is open the door is open doesn't mean you have to talk doesn't mean you're forced to talk but if you ever need to you when you're at your lowest grief moment you want to know i could i could talk about it so for your dad to have that family meeting or in and it's a classic teenage thing my dad used to make us have family meetings and we would rip him apart for it oh, did, did you actually you had yeah, family meetings yeah we had family meetings. oh my god my parents are very um, hippie, kind of a, into like Californian self-help type things. And we used to have family meetings on a Sunday to um, plan the week and set our goals. Oh and, my goodness, yep. that's just amazing. <laughs> and, um, and it was mortifying, but there was always a part of me that was like glad. But it's like, my deal was like, I'm not going to tell you I'm glad. I'm a fucking teenager. You have to deal with my sarcasm, my face, my body language <laughs> telling you you're a dickhead. But... I want you to do it because it's not my job to be the person that instigates this. I'm just here to be present. And I think that's really 
it's it's a, a strong thing you have and you know you know this from being a parent you have to sometimes do things on a limb that the, the child is like, this is rubbish. And you're somewhere and you have to be like, no, I think this is a good thing that they're allowed to say is rubbish that like, but I think I should still do it. And to do that as well as hold his own grief. Like I can't imagine having like 11 kids coming up and at different points grieving in front of you. That must've been just, and his heart must've been breaking every time because obviously he's, he deeply misses her and, and you deeply miss her or, you know, which one he was talking to. So to allow to not shut that down, I guess is my the point I'm slowly making, is a very takes a lot of strength to not just go. Yeah. You know what? I actually can't deal with eleven of you crying. <laughs> yeah, or even just the fact that you know uh, I knew from experience of my other friends when I go to other houses and I'd see how they talk to their parents and I, and um, there wasn't that sort of easy empathy. There wasn't yeah. the sort of I mean my friends, my teenage friends would have been horrified to if they saw it were a fly on the wall. And saw that, you know, even even when I was 14 or 15, when my dad came home, we would rush and give him a big hug. Um, some part of that is obviously, you know, once bitten, twice shy. We yeah, know yeah, how yeah. fragile these things are. Yeah. And also there's that other thing, which is buried back in the deep, deep in the back of your brain, is this could happen again. Yeah. There could be him gone, you know. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass? So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome back to Griefcast with Carrie Ad Lloyd. I mean, I really love that thing you said before about... You know, you kind of you arrive at the the party early there at the Twiglets, <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and I really love that as a metaphor because I do feel like obviously this is a club that no one wants to be a member of, which every single person who has or will ever live will experience yeah. what yeah. I experienced, what you experienced, 
but it's just at completely different times. Yeah. So to some extent, it's an infinite amount of ways that it can happen. But I will say that I think that so many of the the circumstances of my childhood, which seem from the outside a sad story, mm. were really saved from being a sad story because of a lot of its constituent parts. The yeah. fact that we had ten, I had ten brothers and sisters, but we all loved each other. Yeah. That was uh, that's ten life rafts right there. Yeah. The fact that it was my dad. You know, he was left to look after us, but not left to look after us. Like, it's like he was dropped from space as the perfect man who could ever do yeah, this job. Yeah, yeah, I mean, yeah. my my father very movingly he said he wasn't scared after the last time he talked to my mum, and she said she wasn't scared, and she said I'm not scared. I know you can do it, and like obviously I am bawling my eyes yeah. when I'm hearing this, oh and goodness. I could probably and my dad saying my dad saying this to me, relating her not her last words it was. That was, you know, wasn't the last conversation mm-hmm. they had, but it was. He was terrified because he was losing her and because of everything else. And she just looked at her with this, you know, the infinite kindness of it. Can you imagine? Where she must be going through so much. And then mm-hmm. she says, I'm not scared, you know? And like, that really affected me. And I was like, Christ. I mean, I don't know if I could put that in the book because I'd, I'd need like two or three jokes either side of it just to get <laughs> just to get my life back. I mean, I'm actually I'm welling up now just thinking about it because yeah, yeah. that kind of that kind of load to bear, and I'm so so lucky. And my my childhood, the, the reason why so much of the stuff for the book is, you know, zips along and is funny and has a lot of absurdity and is meant to do that is because I had just such an umbrella over me mm. with you know with circumstance and with the act the active will of of my family and particularly my father that you know what should have been the death of the universe was somehow you know allowed to keep on trucking and to prosper you know yeah i mean that is that is an incredible thing to say that is an incredible i'm not like i'm i'm welling up because that's the thing. I guess if you if you really you know, as both of us understand the Dead Parent Club, you know how precious the the you know because we know there's the point where the person dies and everything afterwards is the completely different. You know, it's like A D B C. You know, like the world changed, and um, to to give a gift like that to your dad is just so kind <laughs> because. Every time he doubts himself, he's going to be like, she didn't. She knew I, she had faith. She believed in me. And that's going to give you so much strength. And just, uh, that's, and not to say she did it, to, you know, I'm going to say this thing to because that's going to help. But like, just, it's just a really beautiful, it says a lot about their love and their relationship and yeah. how much they adored you all. And, and it's funny, isn't it? I wonder if you can relate to this. I did a thing ages ago and, um, it was like a gig where everyone was like talking about weird experiences and this guy stood up he'd nearly died and um you know obviously it was very sad he'd nearly died but the way he sort of framed it was like and I thought of my child and I would never see my child you know do her GCSEs or get married and I thought what could you know what kind of life would I have have given this person and I was sat next to him like I mean my life like (laughs) she would have had my life and I'm okay and there's that thing of like you're not saying you're glad it happened but they're like I guess to just 
be thankful for the things that mean you're okay yeah absolutely and, and it, it obviously it's a terrible terrible thing that happens but sometimes people treat it like oh god like how did you survive and you're like well i'm i it's because of people who love me and, and me <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and, and there's, my mum like. and there's a sort of a queasiness I think that other people have which I've kind of been inoculated against mm. in in seeing all the things which have happened in my life since which I can pretty much I can pretty much confirm that they wouldn't have been as good you yeah. know if we hadn't suffered this horrible shock and that's obviously not the same thing as saying it's a good thing that my mum died no. but it's like huh well, I, I have a really powerfully close relationship with my family and I have a unbelievably loving relationship with my dad mm. and it's a very funny teasing relationship with 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 him it's it's very close and you know piss takey but there's a like it's a bright burning fire of love mm. that I have for him which I almost have to it almost scares me when I think about it too much so I have to make fun of the fact that he yeah. had never heard of a high five or <laughs> until very recently he, party, he once at a dinner table said slap my hand high up in the air <laughs> uh, this is you know this is the kind of guy he's, he's, he's younger than like Paul McCartney or <laughs> Mick Jagger but he's the he's like a 400 year old man sometimes yeah, yeah. and he's a funny duddy and he's silly about some of the things that he says and does and whatever he believes that he can speak to dogs and that they speak back um, but like you said, it's because because that love is so strong because you know what it's like to lose someone you have to add humour into it because I have you, to if you woke up every day and acknowledged what that person had done for you how much you adored them it would be a bit awkward so <laughs> you you have to yeah you really have to kind of make make jokes about it and I can relate to a lot you know every time me and my mum and my brother have had one of our you know you've had a bit where everyone's had a cry and you know it's you're having a hug and everyone's having a moment and then it's like some joke just comes in instantly because it's like well it's we can't stand it telling how much we love each other forever can we <laughs> it's a bit awkward. that would be weird be i weird. mean that's yeah like and that's the part my dad said as well afterwards like because the joke there's loads of jokes at his expense you know i call him god's one perfect miser um <laughs> Uh, because he used to hold up, you know. I mean, I had all of the same teenage things with my dad that everybody has with yeah. their dads. Like he was stroppy, he was uh, inconsiderate sometimes. He was, you know, he wouldn't, he he could not pass over a saving or a deal. <laughs> he at one time he would buy like a thousand, you know, pack everything because you know big family. But he would buy the cheapest things. Like no part of me was realizing he was bringing up eleven kids in a single. I know moment. you wrote about that in the book about like him like arguing over two pounds or something, and I was like, eleven kids that that matters, doesn't it? Of like- course it does, and it's so. I mean, I do write the book as much as possible from the point of view of the person that age, yeah, which yeah, hopefully yeah. comes across like you know I'm. It's zipping along because I'm trying to capture the fact that I was so self-absorbed because I'm a child and you know and then at at certain points I'm a little bit older like 10 or 11 or whatever but like those kinds of stories they can only really be told and made fun of whenever you're thinking about the fact that I'm a 13 year old boy standing waiting for my dad to cease holding up an entire shop with a thousand toilet rolls because he's (laughs) not making two pound saving if we flipped it around and I'm telling the story from the point of view of a guy who's exhausted who spent now 10 years looking after 11 kids all by himself and is just trying to be have a deal honoured and who has no compunction about standing there and holding everyone up let them be hold, held up 
let them be held up. Yeah. Okay, he's he's like he's made a steal. You know, he's <laughs> like that's also funny. So yeah. I tried to get that in afterwards. You know, have my cake and eat it. But it wasn't like he was this kind of worshipful god that we just. No, and I think that's but again we, important to highlight, isn't it? It's not. It's not like you have this again, like a saint. You can't be saintly with people who are still there. Because the day-to-day, of course, people get annoyed and they say the wrong thing or you snap or you're tired. So, you know, their their position on the pedestal is rocky. <laughs> but when you've lost a parent at a young age, you like you said, it's like, I think if you haven't and you're a teenager, you're like, oh, fuck them, I hate them. And you're like, oh, fuck them, <laughs> but I hope they don't die and I know that I'm really lucky to have them. There's just this, like, extra level to everything because, yeah, you, you know you know what it looks like when they're not there and you know like you know that yes they're annoying but it's the you you know what forever means you know what dead really means you know and and yeah it's I think you wrote about this book like you said it's not um yeah you did which I thought was really interesting like it's not when people make you know accidentally make jokes about your mum jokes or something it's when people take the parents for granted that's what hurts you as a parent as a someone in the young parent grieving yeah group. it was like have, it was like watching someone burn a 20 quid note in front yeah, of you. yeah whenever they would say i hate my mom yeah. she will give me uh she will give me money to go out this weekend and like i would never say anything because can you imagine that conversation <laughs> excuse me <laughs> Do you know what I would give to have a mother? You know, it's a ridiculous thing to say. Yeah, and they wouldn't um, understand. That's the other thing when you were young. No, it, it sounded you're like... You're dealing a, with people who don't... Like, even if you did say anything, they'd just look at you like, oh, what? And you're like, there's no point. You just sort of and, have it in your head, don't you? And to some extent, I, I kind of would agree with them. It's sort of emotional terrorism. Yeah. Um, because, I mean, how the hell are you going to have that conversation? Yeah. And with, with a room full of like 10 people who've no idea what they... What, what they have, what like. they have, yeah. And it's not my job to teach them, and yeah. it's more just my job to just okay, just blank out of this because I'm not going to take on the labour at 15 yeah. of trying to explain this to people. And also, I've got I've got better as I got older. I used to really find it difficult when people like moaned about dads. Um, I remember I had a friend who was like, "Oh, he's always calling me. What does he want?" And I was like, "Oh my god!" And I've got better at going you know what people have different relationships and people are different and actually maybe with their dad that is irritating like but because you're in that thing of like you you do you know just to have a dad is exciting for me um and you you know it's just because yeah you just know too early um how has it been with the age gap because as in like so you were five when your mum died and then obviously the ones who were teenagers have a completely different memory of her you said they're like hard drives but like have you then found yourself getting older and wanting to like oh hey can you tell me this can you tell me this and are they okay talking about it yeah I mean one of the things that's been incredible just specifically about writing the book is that I've had the opportunity to because I'm writing a book, it's like I've got a little a little hat on with the yeah, press yeah, you know, yeah. thing. And uh, we set up a WhatsApp group called Best Face Forward, um, which is an in-joke in the book. If you buy the book, you'll get the joke. Um, and I just used it, like I mercilessly used it. It was just saying, hey, does anyone remember this time we went to to Westport in Mayo and Mammy, she, she like had her, she stung her lip or something with a bee, it was a can of lilt. And then there's 200 replies saying it wasn't a can of lilt, it was actually a can of fat, you know. <laughs> because they're, they're, this is how you get the stuff out of them. Yeah, and yeah, yeah. you could literally ask anything, and I've said this before, but you kind of hope or presume that it's going to be like, you know, uh, the Bourne movies, yeah, where yeah. Uh, there's 10 people on satellites, you know, all looking at all the footage and you get a perfect idea of this 
terrorist event or something. But actually, it's like getting ten cats to pose for a photo. Yeah, yeah. They no one remember. So like the the name of the book is "Did You Hear Mommy Died," and that's based on the story that I, at the wake, age five, didn't understand enough about death to know that you shouldn't greet everybody that comes in with the cheery refrain, "Did you hear Mommy died?" Um, so I don't remember that happening. Yeah, yeah. I was too young, and thankfully my brain just said, "No, you can just we can Let delete that go, one for you." Yeah. But unfortunately, 10 external hard drives. <laughs> and so they all remember. But half of them remember it. Half of them don't. Half of them remember it slightly differently, that it was actually way worse. And I was there for like 10 minutes. Uh, and others were like, no, you just kind of said it to one person. I just, you know, it's yeah. it's kind of been blown into this thing. I don't know who to believe. I went with the funniest version. Yeah, yeah. And I had to do that a lot. But the amazing thing to me is, that even though we are quite close, and even though we did definitely, as kids, talk about this stuff a bit, um, for writing the book one of the best things has been I can I could have and I did I can ring you know my sister Maeve at 4pm on a random Tuesday and say what was mommy's wake like now I would never have had that forthrightness yeah yeah and there permission. was like uh, permission beyond permission it was like a a certificate from the UN. It was like <laughs> it was genuinely like it was a I was like a embedded reporter in my own family. Whereas even though we were by the standards of these kinds of things, we were very open talking about our feelings. You know, but we still weren't always in the mood. Or if yeah. you were in the mood, you'd talk about the same old stuff, or you'd gravitate towards the funny stories, which yeah. is stuff like me going around traumatizing people at the wake by saying, "Did you hear mommy died?" Or you know, weird things like you know, more the funny stories that was a bit of a release valve. Um, whereas I was like, literally how many priests were there at the wake and then how, what happened here? My brother Shane told me that my sister Dervla cried so much that her shoe fell off. <laughs> and I was like, that is such an amazing image. That oh is immediately God. going into the book. Yeah. My sister, she cried so much her shoe fell off. Wow. I was, I'm trying to imagine that. What a yeah. wonderful cause and effect. And she had to be, t- she had to be taken out and sedated. And I don't know if this is, a, but, but there was a GP or is, was, was there wow. uh, was a very close family friend and he I don't know if that meant like injecting her or something I don't know but that's what he remembers and he would have been 13 probably wow, yeah. maybe maybe 13 maybe 12 um, and he told me he remembered going in and, and like one of our teachers uh, in school came up to him and said well you know I know what this is like my mother died this year as well <laughs> And he was like, uh, well. "You're like, you're like five hundred years old. What are you talking about? This isn't the same at all. Like, I'm twelve, and I know that it's, this is this is tragic. This yeah, is way yeah, sadder. Yeah, yeah. Like, I'm I am like top tier Premier League. This is tragic. Yeah, I mean, I get you're it. like, like I get him trying to like build a bridge, but unless you're in the like, if he'd said my mum died when I was twelve, you'd be like, oh, okay, you know what it's like to be twelve. But if you're not, yeah, it's when people say people just say such weird things, don't you? And you're like, it's know, okay, you don't have you to have find to a link. You don't have to find and a link. You have to forgive because people are yeah. so awkward and they're so nervous. Yeah. And I'm extremely, um, I'm extremely. Uh, generous with people who say the wrong thing because it's it's so hard to navigate this yeah. and I find it so hard to navigate it is. Uh, and I feel like you only have to be kind to people who are just trying and even yeah. if they fail it's you it's know, a funny story them, it's normally a funny story you give it? them give them all the slack in the world and yeah. if they're a very close friend you can tease them about it for the rest of their <laughs> life um, and you said in the book as well that writing um, had brought back memories that you you had lost like so how was it in terms of writing a book and then you know having i'm in the mid i've just finished writing my book which is more about just like grief but obviously there's been lots of stuff i've had to write about my dad and it's i found it a kind of strange process to have to sort of 
have them with you again after many yeah. years of not having them like yeah how did you find it i find it lovely for the most part particularly the chapters where i was actually talking more about my mum specifically because really most of the book is about grief more generally and how it affected me me yeah. me me the most important <laughs> the main character of reality yeah me but there's there are chapters then which are more specifically just about my mum um there i've got letters that she wrote to my uh her friend patricia which are just incredibly just mundane letters most of the time they're not like uh particularly sort of awe-inspiring amazing it's not like lincoln's you know (laughs) addresses that are kept in the library of congress or something but there's so much heart and beauty in them and there's so much the fact that they're handwritten you know that makes a difference and that that sat with me and recalling memories that i had of her so there's the chapter where i talk about the five memories that i began the book with and spoiler alert I, I when writing the book i uncovered three more it's uh, amazing which is, isn't it it's amazing oh, what you can if you really open that room and you just dig around for a long time and i think you have to do it for a while like i had it with the with my book of like it, it didn't happen straight away but it was like my brain was like oh you really want to go oh okay there's some other stuff yeah. at the back i just i it thought was, you were visiting <laughs> Like absolutely like that. It was really like that. It was a whole draft of the book, and then the whole second, third. Yeah, there are yeah. A, lot, a lot of drafts of this yeah. book, <laughs> and uh, in that strange way of memory, they weren't. They didn't come like bolt from the blue, brand new. Mm. It was like, oh, there's that one as well. It was like it was literally like you're looking for your glasses, and they're literally yeah, yeah. right in front of you, <laughs> and you're like, oh, yeah, of course, there's that one too. But I just hadn't re remembered it in yeah. twenty years. But I, it when it came, I was like, oh, and not only that, but I remember that you know that was that day because i think we'd just been to jared mclaughlin's birthday you know they come with all their little side yeah memories yeah yeah in which she doesn't feature but which and you're like how big is this yeah this room in my head so memory is a big part of it because i felt like i was cheated out of the fact yeah. that i didn't have as many memories and then of course you have that weird trade-off that you have as you're growing up where you're thinking well i do genuinely think that emotionally it was must have been so much harder for a 15 year old sibling or a 17 year old sibling in that moment that it was for me a five year old with a plastic brain who was so complacent about death or actually just ignorant of the concept of death that he was walking around telling people dear mammy died because you know in two weeks later was going around saying can mammy not be died you know this is almost exact words and I'd let straighten my back and like oh is mommy back from being dead yet and I'd be saying this to people who were obviously having the most traumatic yeah. experience of their lives oh my god and there were two younger than me as well who would have been doing similar things so I'm just like oh god um and you know i think i would have been i probably would have been very anxious about the fact that i didn't know my mum very much mm. and in fact would meet people who knew my mum by any definition better than i did yeah uh, even people that she'd worked with in schools you know if you see someone every single day for what, yeah. 10 years or five years you absolutely know the better you, can, you have probably a thousand memories of sheila o'reilly and i've got like five going on eight yeah you know so that's that rankled with me I mean, there was a woman i met right in the book who's given and i think she was either giving i was either giving blood or i was having my tetanus shot or a booster shot or something one of the jabs you get in school and yeah, the woman yeah. worked in the hospital and so she knew my mum and so she was telling me these beautiful stories about how you know she'd helped this person and she was always in the hospital and she was just such a great person around to be and she'd always do anything the typical stuff about my mum who was a saint but for whatever reason I was like what, what is this 
what is this old lady doing all <laughs> this stuff about my mum? And I have done anything. So I, I was waiting for my chance to speak. And I, I knew so little about my mum mm. that it would just come out with stuff that was completely ir- irrelevant to what she had just been saying. So she would say like, and you know, and that was when I really knew that your mum was just one of the greatest people uh, that I've ever met. Pause. And then I'd go, yes. And uh, allergic to bees, of course. <laughs> Because all you've got is all you've got. <laughs> all I've got. Ah, uh, yes, she, uh, she uh, loved coffee, but uh, hated the Australian soap operas. <laughs> anyway, it's been lovely having this chat with you. You know, I was, yeah. it was like I was a crap talk show host <laughs> who hadn't done the research about the person. And to some extent, oh, that was, that's that's been a shame that I've had. Mm. You know, kind of if, if some weird, it's been processed as sadness, you know, can turn to anger, can turn to other things. And in my case, there was... Yeah, something like a shame that I didn't know her as well, or that my grief was somehow less worth less. Yeah, yeah. Now, because I was grieving uh, the picture that was on the wall, uh, rather than a co- concrete, coherent mm. person like other people. To the point where people would say, "Oh, you know, well, you know what your mum was like," and I would want to say, "No, I don't actually." Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, people would say that about like completely random things, almost contradictory things, like. I says, well, she didn't want to take the long way to Enniskillen. You know what your mum's like? I was like, I don't even know what you're saying. That she's like, does she? She doesn't like shortcuts, or yeah. she was a nervous driver. Like, I'm weird. I think it's weird that you think that I would have known that. I was five. Yeah. Like, what it's she was hard, coming home it? and telling me how much she hated, like, <laughs> going a certain way to Enniskillen. Okay. I'm to like, oh fair, my god. If that was one of your memories, it yeah, all you had was well. I do remember her telling me she did not like taking the long way to Enniskillen. You'd be like, wow. She really made sure that that was the one thing she makes sure Seamus knows that. Yeah, it's really hard. And I think it's just hard for people to understand, obviously, because, you know, unless you've been through it, that you don't have much. It fades. It's it's wobbly because you're a kid. I mean, you know, you ask anybody, do you remember what do you remember about primary school? And they're, they're struggling. Um, and then I think the other thing I've had to sort of help people with of like, like you said, like the letters you've got, like that everything is gold dust because you have so little it's gold dust whereas if you lose a parent like when you're in your 40 obviously you've got you've got lots of things and often people say oh gosh you know there's so much to sort out there's so many things and when you're a kid you're like I've got I've got this pile (laughs) so if you have anything to add to the pile then I'll probably take it even if it's a rubbish thing like yeah the mundanity of things becomes absolute gold dust to you yeah well it's I mean, it's like casting a spell, really. Yeah, isn't it? Um, it is. It is. It's literally ingredients, putting them down, having it written. I mean, one thing that I didn't find I do as much as people who've lost their parents o- older is I don't really do checkpointing, like milestoning, where it's like, oh, it'd be great if mummy was here. Yeah I, yeah. I don't. I don't have that, and I haven't had that ever in my life uh, because there no tradition had ever been established of it. Yeah. I mean, it does happen in super, super big picture terms, like about. Four months after my son was born, I'd be like, oh, be nice if, actually, it would be nice if my mum, you know, was here. Like, even on my wedding day. Yeah. I, I mentioned it in my speech and everything else, but there was no part of me that was, it was, a, it was, it was almost a, an active exercise in thoughtfulness for yes, me to yes. presume that, to think about what it would be like if she was there. Because so, so little tradition of that being established was even, was even there that I didn't even, I didn't think about it at, like, you know, my end of school yeah. celebrations or graduation or anything like that. Uh, and if I did, it was always very fleeting in an act of thought of of, yeah. of consideration, almost like a prayer, almost like 
being reflecting on this person in their life but yeah. not really as them as my parent because uh, it's you just have a very like different I totally relate to that so my husband lost his he's lost both his dad and his mum and he lost his mum when he was in, in his 30s and he's when we had kids there was definitely he was like he found that quite painful that she wouldn't know this person and I was like oh it's funny because I find it sad obviously but I've never I've got I've had a long time to know he's never gonna meet my kids so I found obviously because I was 15 so I remember like you know he didn't know my GCSEs I didn't know my (laughs) A-levels like that was like hard at the time but you just get marker after marker and then Dorno Porter, she lost her mum when she was six. She said that as well. Of like, she doesn't feel like she's grieved because she felt like it's just something that's always been there. <clears throat> it's not like, oh, I grieved my mum. It's like, I've that's how, that's what it is. That's what my life is. So it's a very different, like you said, we all joined the club. We just all got this slightly different takes on it. And the age you are, of course, it massively affects how you how you view these things and I'm the same as you like if I want to get sad about him not meeting my kids I can but I have to kind of think about it and be <laughs> like right, okay go yeah okay, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I have to be like oh yes that is a shame and I definitely got triggered a bit when like I'd see grandpas in the playground and that yeah. that was our thing oh right yeah and for me it was like I had a, a grandpa I was very close to so I was like oh she's not gonna have that like it was kind of having to adjust in my head of like right and I don't know if you have this with your son, like, you know, that he has his mum and like that's, he's going to get that, like. Well, not only that, but I did the awful arithmetic of working out, I don't know what horrible moment of madness this was, but I worked out the date where he would be the same age as I was. Oh, uh, yeah. And I just had to sit down after that. That was, that was not a productive day. I was like, why did I do this to myself? Why? And then grief maths. Don't do the grief maths. Yeah. Um, I mean, Re- Reverend Richard Coles refers to, was it called sad men? Sad men, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's an amazing phrase. Um, where you think about these kinds of things and you have to put things in their in their context uh yeah i I understand why you did that though i definitely understand why you did that because if i definitely had it when when i started getting to the point where i would meet a teenager and they wouldn't look at me like an equal they'd be like oh the nice lady wants to see on the bus and uh, (laughs) and i remember being like oh and what it is is you start seeing yourself in a way that you haven't done. I think that happens with kids. And of course, your son, if your son is heading towards five, you start being like, oh, that's what I look like. That's what I... Because when it's you, it's you. You don't you don't stand outside yourself. And I definitely started to see... If I saw, you know, if I met a teenager, I'd be like, oh, I was a baby. I didn't realise. I thought it was an adult. But now looking at a 15-year-old, I'm like, you're not, you're not an adult. You don't know what you're doing. You're well, a fucking idiot. It, yeah, and it's complicated by the fact that of my... 10 brothers and sisters yeah. uh, my son looks really like me <laughs> and and uh, he looks like uh, you know he's small and ginger and pale and <laughs> he basically looks very 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 close to me now he, he really took after his mother in the first few years but now he's kind of lengthened and got a bit of a beak um, so just, I have that thing all the time like if he sees a picture of me there's a picture of me as a child on the book cover uh, he thinks it looks like him. Wow! You know, he and uh, he has his first thing though. I've told him it's daddy, but because I've got a little crown on my head, um, a little sort of paper crown, he refers to it as daddy the queen. <laughs> he does not acknowledge that kings exist because he's uh, that's fine. You be a queen. He's, he's very third wave. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's it is really strange when you see these things through his eyes, and also I have to, I feel like I have to gain a little bit more 
uh, weirdly, I have to gain more empathy again. Yeah. Because I have to go through all this stuff which I have, you know, in the biggest pair of quote marks you've ever seen in your life, dealt with it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I have to then re-explain it. And then sometimes in the course of re-explaining this, like, say, for example, in spending three years writing a bloody book about it, you realise, oh, I haven't dealt with any of this. And I've dealt with some of it really well. And some of it, I've dealt with it the way a five-year-old deals with things. And maybe that's why at 10, I had this, what I can only call now a breakdown, but at the time I thought was just, oh, just a weird a weird four months where I never didn't sleep at night yeah. uh, and then I had another one in college I had one on a, a city break to Bilbao just little moments little breaks and I compare them in the book to sort of controlled explosions yeah um, and kind of tie it into that whole idea that you know you're burying something uh, so deep and you're functioning and you're doing very well and not only that but you're getting praised by people yeah. not because you're holding everything in but because you're just emotional about it enough and yeah. whatever and to some extent, it uh, you know, it's just there's no perfect way. And I think I did very, very well out of how my grief is handled. But even in that, which yeah, is yeah, it's one still of the best grief. Case still needs to it's be handled. Grief, you still find yourself at 23 going, "Why am I so sad today?" Yeah, and you're like, "God, it's just annoying." But it's also, it's part of the life that we have. It's part of the yeah. weird chemistry of our brains. It's part of how our hearts work. And it's really given the alternative if that is how sad we can get then just imagine the flights of ecstasy we can achieve as well well Seamus on that note <laughs> I was going to add it and I thought no he's, he's done that writer thing he said it very well um, <laughs> thank you so much for coming to talk to me about Sheila and your dad what was your dad's name we uh, my dad's name is Joe, Joe and he is lovely and he does sound the way that I made him sound <laughs> can I just say he read the audiobook he listened to the audiobook uh, for five five hours straight when the day was released wow. <laughs> he said I don't sound like that um, <laughs> which is my favourite thing to say when I'm doing an impression of my dad but anyway well thank you so much I really appreciate it it was really really lovely talking to you thank you so much Caria this has thank been lovely you. You can follow Seamus on Twitter at shockproofbeats. That's shock, proof and beats, all one word. The book Did You Hear Mammy Died is out, available to buy now. I can't recommend it enough. It's such a beautiful book. Um, you can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at The Griefcast. The show was recorded remotely from both our living rooms. It was edited by Kate Holland. The music was provided by the Glue Ensemble. And remember, you are not alone. catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row dreaming of something better well hello fresh is your guilt-free dream come true baby it's me geeky palmer let's wake up those taste buds with hot juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi mm. hello fresh stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at hellofresh.com let's get this dinner party started 